We are in the midst of a series entitled The Good Life, in which we're walking through Jesus' words in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, I've talked about this from the very beginning of this series, and I want to keep laying this out because I want us to understand that, uh, or understand this, is when, when you read Jesus' words as a whole, and in particular when you read Jesus' words here in, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, if, if we come to it thinking that this is some self-help book, self-help teaching, that, that all we have to do is take it in and then we just have to try harder and we just have to believe in ourselves more and we'll get there, then we're missing the point. Now, that doesn't absolve us from the responsibility of living out what God calls us to live, but over and over, Jesus is going to remind us, and from the very beginning, he reminds us, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who recognize they are broken, that they can't do it on their own, because just believing in yourself and trying harder isn't going to get you where God desires to get you. But it is, the key is to believe and trust in him more and allow him to transform us from the inside out so that we can live out what he's trying to impart us through his teaching. And this is so important, particularly for where we are going to go this morning, as I mentioned, as we come to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, on the subject of adultery and lust. You and I live in a sex-saturated culture. Sex and sexuality has become perhaps the biggest issue in our world today. And it's pretty much everywhere in our culture, and it is abused and distorted in pretty much every area of our culture as well, which is why it's so important, perhaps now more than ever, that we as believers lend an ear to what it is that the Bible teaches in regard to sex and sexuality. Now, having said that, Jesus' teaching does not cover every area of sex and sexuality, and I am not going to cover every area of sex and sexuality in our sermon this morning, but I do think that there are some keys that we can look at that help to frame the larger subject and also speak specifically to this subject that Jesus talks about here. Hopefully that will be apparent as we talk about things throughout the rest of the sermon this morning. So, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Here's what Jesus says. You've heard that it was said, <clears throat> you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, before we get into this, I think it's helpful to have some biblical context on any subject that you're talking about, obviously, uh, but especially on this topic and on this topic as a whole. You and I, as human beings, were designed for intimacy. You and I were designed for relationship with other human beings. And, and I, I don't mean that on a sexual level primarily. I mean, you and I were designed by God to be in relationships, friendships, families, obviously in a husband-wife relationship as well, but we were designed 
for intimacy, and we long for it. God wired us that way. He wired it into the fabric of our beings. I think that's why so many of us, like, it, it, you, you go back two years ago, and why did we, why, what was one of the main reasons we struggled through all of this stuff with COVID? Because we couldn't be around other human beings, right? We, we were disconnected from each other, and so much depression and substance abuse and so many other things came out of this time period that we're still seeing the, the ramifications of now. A lot of that due in part to our lack of being connected to other people. And so that's hardwired into who we are. No person walks this planet without that desire and that longing for intimacy. But when those desires go awry, and they do, and they have, because sin is a part of this world that we live in, when those good God-given desires get distorted, we start using what God intends for intimacy, and we start turning it into something for ourselves and for our own gratification. But that desire is still there, and it's still good. That desire for intimacy for relationship, to be known, to be valued, to be loved. Those are God-given desires, and I want us to understand that. And part of that intimacy that God created us for involves sex and sexual fulfillment and pleasure that's meant to accompany those things. But here's the key, and I want to start this out from the very, very beginning. Here is the key in its context, right? In its proper context. What is the context? Well, God's word gives us that context. The context is in a covenant relationship, covenant marriage between one man and one woman. That's the context in which God confines sex and sexual fulfillment and desire. That's it. That's the one and only context. Intimacy can happen in a friendship. Intimacy can happen in a, in, in a family. It can happen in a church family. I mean, it ought to be happening in those areas, but sexual intimacy is meant for and only for a covenant marriage relationship between one man and one woman. So let's get that out of the way. Not getting that out of the way, but setting the foundation of that. But within that context, you have a whole book, Song of Solomon, that's devoted to a covenant marriage and a covenant relationship and, 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 and intimacy between a husband and a wife. You don't have to turn there right now. Um, but it's, it's a, I mean, it's a, there's some detailed things in that, in that book. Um, and, and that's in God's Word. And, and, and so that physical union and that intimacy between a man and a woman in covenant marriage, covenant relationship, that is God's idea. And it isn't just for the purposes of procreation. God could have made things very utilitar- utilitarian, right? But He didn't. He, he made it with the potential for powerful intimacy and pleasure. And the reason I think it's important for us to kind of lay the groundwork on some of these things is because as believers, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that the church historically, in its zeal to confront sexual immorality, and we should in all forms, not just the ones that we think get the most publicity in the news, all forms of sexual, immor- sexual immorality, are, are wrong in God's eyes. They're sinful in God's eyes. But in our zeal to confront sexual immorality, I think we've sometimes given off the idea that God is against all sexual intimacy. And that's just not true. It, it isn't because sexual intimacy and pleasure uh, are, are, are so bad that God has, has such specific guidelines about it, but rather it's because it's so good and powerful in its proper context 
that he gives such specific guidelines about it. And keeping it in its proper context makes all the difference in the world in sexual intimacy and pleasure either being a blessing or it being something that's an instrument of destruction. Frederick Buechner, author and theologian, wrote this. He said, Like nitroglycerin, sex can be used to either blow up bridges or heal hearts. And speaking of nitroglycerin and blowing up bridges... This is what God was seeking to prevent when he gave Moses the law in the Old Testament, which condemned committing adultery. Jesus begins this teaching by saying and referring back to that. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Jesus was specifically referring to that Old Testament law, which prohibited a married person from having physical relations with someone other than his or her spouse. Now remember where we are in the flow of the Sermon on the Mount, right? We talked about this, I guess it had been about a month ago, um, where Jesus is in the midst of giving us six real-life practical examples of what it means to live out this righteousness from the inside out, a righteousness that comes from the heart and not just an outward action. When we were last in our study, which was three weeks ago, we talked about this in regards to anger and how just because you may be at odds with someone, not killing them is not the goal, right? Not killing them doesn't mean that you are living righteously the way God desires. And we think, well, at least I didn't kill them. And Jesus says, no, that bar is too low. That's not the bar. Okay, that's good that you didn't kill them. That's a step in the right direction. But that bar is too low. That's not the goal. What it means to be righteous from your heart, from the inside out, when you're at odds with someone, is not just to refrain from killing them. It's not even even to refrain from being angry or even insulting them with your words. But rather, being righteous from the inside out involves seeking restoration, seeking reconciliation. And in our passage today, Jesus makes it clear that just because you don't engage in the physical act of adultery doesn't mean that your heart is in good shape when it comes to living righteously from the inside out. Or that you're seeing that person in in, in the way God desires for you to see them. Or that you're seeing your spouse in the way that God desires for you to see them. And this is one of the things that Jesus is, is driving home when he says, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How many of you have seen, I wish I had a picture up, I should have put it up. How many of you have seen those pictures where you've got the iceberg taken, a picture taken where you can see the underneath and the on top. You know what I'm talking about? I think that's a really good picture for kind of understanding what Jesus is trying to get across here. And, and, and when he says, you've heard that it's said, you, you've heard that it's said, don't murder, right? You've heard that it's said, don't commit adultery. Those are like the ones, that, that's like the picture on top of the iceberg. That's what you can see from above water, right? And so we can check that off. Okay, didn't do that. Okay, didn't do that. But Jesus wants to get deeper, What's going on underneath the surface? He doesn't just want to talk about behavior and action. He wants to talk about heart and motivation. Now, let me also say that when it comes to that phrase, looks at a woman lustfully, again, out of some zeal, I think good intention, but some over-exercise zeal, I think we've overreached when it comes to that phrase. This is just my take on this, so I'm not going to say this is exactly, but I, I don't think this is what Jesus is talking about. Um, but I think some have taught that even a passing glance or thinking that someone is attractive, that those things are lust. Again, I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to here. Now, when those things happen, we have to be very careful not to indulge 
that passing thought or that passing glance, but I don't think those things are what Jesus is talking about here. Also, there is a difference between sexual temptation and lust. Jesus is saying, he's not saying that temptation is a, a sin. There's a difference because you can be tempted without sinning. Certainly, you, you know, temptation can lead to sin, but it doesn't have to. And that initial glance or that initial thought can be stopped at that point without it becoming sin. Lust, however, is when we pursue that temptation, when we indulge that glance or that thought to the point of desiring that person or playing some image in our minds. And so Jesus comes along and he says the righteousness that the Father is aiming for isn't simply a matter of not committing adultery with your body. It's a matter of not even going there in your heart and in your mind. So what is lust all about? Well, we're not going to get into all of that this morning. Um, But I do want to reflect with you a little bit about why we should take this teaching from Jesus seriously. Because we live in a culture that does not take this stuff seriously. Um, And I think we should, obviously. So what is going on? What what, what is it that, that we need to understand? Well, let me just give you a couple of thoughts. And the first is this. In adultery and lust, we are bringing more than belongs into the covenant. We're bringing more than belongs into the covenant. I want to show you a picture. Uh, this picture is of a Jewish chuppah, not hubba, as in hubba hubba, which might fit in the, but chuppah, Jewish chuppah. This is a modern version of a chuppah, and it looks similar to some of the things that we might use that are non-Jewish in nature. But I want to tell you a little bit about the ancient Jewish chuppah specifically ones that were used in Jesus' day. There are a couple of things that would happen when a man and woman would enter into a marriage in Jewish culture. First, they would sign what amounts to a spiritual contract. And then they would, after they signed this contract, they would enter into uh, or underneath this chuppah. And only the woman, now nowadays, modern-wise, that's not always practiced, but traditionally, only the man and the woman would enter underneath the chuppah. Just the two of them and no one else. And as I said, this is more of a modern version, but a few things in particular about the more traditional versions. For one, there would be tassels all along the top, and those tassels represented the 613 commands of God in the Old Testament. They also had curtains on the side. That one does a little bit. Um, They had curtains on the side which represented a prayer shawl. And the, the, it, it was as if to say that the, the man and woman are coming in and underneath and, and, and on the sides of, you know, kind of surrounded by this, this prayer shawl um, under the prayer of Deuteronomy chapter 5, which, or chapter 6, verse 5, which says, Love the Lord your God. This is a very, it's the Shema, the Jewish Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? We know that very, very well, that passage very well. Also, the, the covering, there was often, uh, well, some had a covering, some not. If it didn't have a covering, it's understood, but a lot of them did have a covering. But the covering was meant to say, this is not like a physical covering. God is the covering. God is the covering of, of everything we're doing today and everything we're going to do moving forward. And so, in essence, they, they were crossing this line and going underneath the chuppah. And in doing so, they were making a covenant with, with each other, but also a covenant with God, with him as the covering. And part of this covenant is the commands and the instructions of God. As I said, all of those, those commands, 
um, because love ultimately is the fulfillment of the law, as Romans chapter 13 talks about. And so these commands are seen as ways that we're going to love each other and we're going to build each other up underneath this covering of God and him surrounding us and everything he's about surrounding us. And we're making this covenant as we're entering into this, this, we're making this commitment as we're entering into this covenant to come underneath the covering of God and live by his instructions for how to love one another and how to build one another up. That was the commitment. That's, that's a lot, right? That, that was the commitment that, uh, the, that the man and the woman were making. And so all that being said, when we enter into a marriage covenant today, one of the things that I'm saying or that we ought to be saying to our spouse is that out of the 7.9 billion people on this planet, I'm going to share myself at the deepest level, both physically and emotionally, with you and with you only. And just as God should have no other gods before him in our hearts, so there will be no other person or obsession that competes with your place in my heart. But when adultery happens, then there's more than just two people under the chuppah. When adultery happens, now we've got three under the chuppah. And some of might say, well, it, you know, it's not a, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's not adultery with our bodies, so how are we, we doing that? But Jesus, again, he's aiming for righteousness that goes just beyond the surface level, beyond just refraining from committing adulteries with our body. It's a righteousness where we refrain from even going down that road in our hearts and our minds, even looking at another man or woman with lust in our hearts. Because in lusting after another person other than my spouse, there's still another in the chuppah. And whether it's pornography on a computer screen or another person in real life or whatever it may be, there's all kinds of ways that you and I can overcrowd the chuppah. And I want us to have that image in our hearts and our minds because I would venture to say that there are probably as many marriages that are destroyed by affairs of the heart as there are by affairs of the body. It's oftentimes just much slower, and it works like erosion. And the reality is that eventually those things affect the way that we see our spouse and how we relate to our spouse. And after time, what starts out as a slow drip can eventually carve out a canyon. Now, I also realize that we're much more accustomed to talk about this in terms of guys as it relates to women. Um, even Jesus speaks here to, to guys but studies are showing that this is a problem for women just as much as it is for men. Certainly, it's just been more common to address it from a, a male perspective, but I think it's also appropriate to address it from a female perspective as well. Because listen, adultery and lust are equal opportunity destroyers. Equal opportunity destroyers. And that's why I say that when it comes to adultery and lust, we're bringing more than belongs into the covenant and underneath the chuppah. And I think there's profound wisdom in what Jesus is saying about seeing to it that the chuppah and the covenant remains uncrowded in our hearts and not just with our bodies. But there's also a second thing that we don't typically think about. And I think it's important for us to understand specifically when it comes to lust, and, and obviously it can lust lead somewhere, we know that. Um, but, but the second thing is this, in, in adultery and lust, we're turning love into lust and people into objects. 
We're turning love into lust and people into objects. Several years ago, Bill Maher, many of you know, um, he has a talk show. And um, anyways, he was hosting a panel of women. And they were discussing rules for relationships between a man and a woman. And Mar at one point made this statement. He said, unless you women are willing to give us what we want whenever we want it, you don't have the right to gripe when we use pornography. That's what he said. And the women at first were kind of taken aback about it, but then they talked about it and they all agreed in the end that he was right. But this rule, if you want to call it a rule, I think demonstrates such the distorted attitude about sex that is so prevalent in our culture and our society. That sex is seen as something that is primarily for one's personal and physical pleasure. And the other person is simply a tool to be used to that end. But as one scholar and theologian wrote, this is so good. He said, unless you're willing to make a complete personal commitment to someone from whom you're asking a complete bodily commitment, then you really don't want that person. What you want is the experience, and that person is a necessary commodity. In essence, we are dehumanizing that person. The problem with lust is that it's a self-gratification project. Sexual intimacy is meant to include the giving of oneself to another, not simply the taking. Sex is meant to be an expression of love and faithfulness and commitment, but lust divorces that, divorces sexual intimacy from that context. Lust is about me using people in my heart and in my mind to gratify myself and my desires, and it conditions us to be self-centered and pleasure-centered in how we live and how we view those around us. And eventually that leads to us degrading and it's sometimes even destroying other people to a certain degree. And here's the deal. At some point, see this is where we think, well, it's not that bad, is it? I didn't go. At some point, this stuff is going to manifest itself in action. At some point, point, what is on the inside is going to come out because you can't divorce what's going on in your heart with how you behave. It's going to come flowing out of you eventually. And when lust begins to manifest itself, it can do so in several ways that may seem innocuous on the surface. But think about it. It can manifest itself in something as simple as you favoring an attractive person over someone who's not as attractive. Do you do that? Lust can manifest itself in other ways. It can manifest itself in, in inappropriate relationships and in, in where we're spending our time and where we're kind of giving our heart to certain people. It can manifest itself in our speech, in the words that we say or the conversations that we involve ourselves in. This is not just me telling you what I think. This is what research is showing. But it can even go deeper than that because experts also say that lust has a great deal to do with sexual harassment, with abuse, with molestation, and even with the taking of someone's life in extreme cases. In fact, studies have been done on serial killers here in America that have shown that many of them have profound history of pornography and sexual degradation. Now, I'm not saying that if you lust or you know, look at pornography. I'm not saying that you're our serial killer. I'm not saying that. But listen, that's where it starts. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. This is not just something to take lightly. This is serious 
stuff. It's like giving a match to a baby. It's not good. It's not good results going to come from that. And this is the wisdom of Jesus when he says, listen, you've got the bar set too low if you think that righteousness is simply a matter of refraining from committing adultery with your body. It's also a matter of seeing to it that your heart doesn't go there, that it doesn't go there at all, that you attack it there because if you don't deal with it there, it's going to come flooding out of your body before you know it. Here's something that I can assure you of is a reality. Sexual immorality is oftentimes a problem above the belt long before it is below the belt. It is oftentimes a problem above the belt long before it is below the belt. So what do we do with lust? What do we do when it comes to dealing with lust? Do we really get an ice pick and a saw? Is that really what Jesus means when he says if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, um, cut it off. Um, There are some who take this literally. Um, Probably could get a little more graphic, you know, not to be funny, but I I mean, if we're really going to. So what is Jesus really saying? what's, What's he really saying? I don't think he's saying literally do those things. But I, 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 I think ultimately dealing with lust, dealing with these things, as Jesus has said from the very beginning, is a matter of the heart because the body can be mutilated and the heart unchanged. I don't think Jesus is intending for us to take an ice pick or to take a saw uh, to our eyes and our hands, but he is talking about taking radical, sacrificial action in our lives in a way that we won't feed the lust, but that we will starve it in our hearts, and in our minds. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Put to death, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, by the way, too, which (laughs) we'll talk about that in another sermon, which is idolatry. And speaking of putting to death, Galatians chapter 2 reminds us that you and I have been crucified with Christ. If you're a Christian, you have been crucified. Your desires ought to be crucified. And the reality is that you and I don't so much need an ice pick or a saw. We need the cross. We need to crucify those sinful desires. So how do we do that? Well, let me just give you a few things in closing today, a few suggestions when it comes to killing lust. And the first is this. Killing lust begins with confession. Killing lust begins with confession. I'm not talking about blabbing it in front of everybody. But I do think you need people in your life who can hold you accountable. A person, two people, you need somebody in your life. And I'm not just talking about this in the scope of of lust and adultery. but We need people in our lives on, on a whole host of areas to be able to hold us accountable in a loving way, but to hold us accountable. And I think confession in so many ways is where ultimately to God we need to be confessing those things, but even to, to each other. And so we uncover it so that God can cover it. And certainly he covers it with forgiveness that's found through the blood of Christ, but he also in some ways covers it through the body of Christ. And through confession, through the church, and confessing to each other, or to at least one, again, I'm not saying blab it, um, but but. Letting others know and, and, and walk alongside with you and help you move forward towards healing. Again, not blabbing in front of everybody, but finding someone that you can trust who can help us and hold us accountable. In many ways, when it comes to fighting off an infection in one part of the body, it takes the whole body. 
It takes all of us working together and holding each other up. And so it is spiritually. I need more than just myself to deal with the infection in my life. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you may be healed. So that you can find some healing and some restoration. Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so we begin with confession. Secondly, killing lust involves location, location, location. No, this is not a lesson on real estate, but the same lesson can be applied to real estate as it can be to this subject in our hearts and in our lives. Certainly, we are bombarded. We are bombarded with messages of sexuality and innuendos and images everywhere, but I do think that you and I can do a better job of what, than what we often do. Of, of limiting those things that are coming into our hearts and our minds, those things that we think are innocuous. They're not that big of a deal. It doesn't, if I, if I had a dollar, if I even had a dime for every time I've heard that, and also at times when I've said that, that it doesn't affect me. That, that is an arrogant thing to say because you're not recognizing your proclivity to be tempted and to sin, and you're also throwing away every other person who struggled with this, right? It does affect you. Now, it affects some more than others, but it does affect you. What you take in and where you are and the environments that you surround yourself with affect you. And you and I can limit, I think, sometimes how much we are exposed to those things that arouse our thoughts and our imaginations. And one of the ways that we do that is taking into account our location. What kind of environments are we allowing ourselves to be put in? What kind of positions do we put ourselves in? And that could evolve anything from our relationship with the computer, where we put our computer in our home, where we put our, our, our TV, what movies we watch, what mu- music we listen to, what TV shows we watch, the conversations that we engage ourselves in, location, location, location. That leads me to a third suggestion that goes right along with this. And that means when it comes to killing lust, I think you and I need to constantly, constantly be inspecting our audio-video component. Again, what's coming in? What are we feeding our eyes and our ears? When you read through Scripture, there is a direct correlation and relationship between what our eyes are focused on and what our hearts and our minds gravitate towards. Right? We're going to read just a few um, you know, verses later down, down the line where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? What your eyes are focused on is what your heart is going to be led towards. And the same is true when it comes to lust. Job chapter 31 verse 1 says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. I made a covenant. And Job goes on to talk about the reason why that's important, because my heart is so often led by my eyes. In our passage in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about looking at a woman lustfully. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, speaks of the lust of the eyes. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, speaks of those who have eyes full of adultery. It's through our eyes and our ears that we feed our hearts material to meditate on. I mean, I've had this conversation with plenty of people, and I still struggle with it myself. And, and we say, well, why do I have these thoughts? Well, part of that is what you're feeding your heart and your, your, your eyes and your ears. You think about it because that's what you're seeing, right? That's what you're taking in. 
What our hearts meditate on is what we take in. And here's the scary part. What our hearts meditate on is also what oftentimes comes out in our behavior. And that's why it's so important for us to continually inspect our audio-video component. But it's not simply a matter of starving our eyes and our ears of the kinds of things that may arouse lust within us. It's also a matter of giving our eyes and ears something constructive to focus on, right? That's the whole point of what we've been talking about. It's not just a list of don'ts, don't do this, but start doing this. Start feeding your eyes and your ears what you need to be feeding them, the good things, We often say you are what you eat. Well, start eating some of Scripture. Start eating some of God's Word. Start feeding yourself with those things. It's an interesting example of this in Numbers chapter 15 when God tells the Israelites to add the feature of tassels to their garments. Now, I'm not saying that you should go home after church today and put tassels on all your garments. That's not what I'm saying. But I do want you to listen to what he's trying to get across to them. He says this in verses 38 through 40 of Numbers chapter 15. Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at so that it's a reminder, right? It's a reminder so that you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then... You will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I think that's a good picture of where we we ought to be moving towards. Killing lust isn't just about starving our eyes and ears of those images and that content that arouses lust within our hearts. It's also about feeding our eyes and our ears the kind of content that's worth meditating on. Because what we put in is eventually what's going to come out. And then here's the last thing. Killing lust requires help from above for the battle within. As I said from the very beginning, we can't do it without God's Spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. Keep believing in yourself more. Keep putting your trust in you more. I can do this. Paul says it's not going to work out very well for you. But if by the Spirit you put to death, by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Because here's the deal. The Holy Spirit is not an ice pick or saw. The Holy Spirit is a transformer. Because not only has, has, you know, has, has, has God given us this, this transformation through His Son, but he's also given her, or forgiveness through his son, but he's also given us the ability to be transformed into the image of his son through the Holy Spirit that lives within us and to transform us from the inside out and to learn to live through him and by him and with him and keep in step with him and through God's Spirit. It really is possible. We don't have to live the way we've always lived or give in to those things we've always done. It really is possible to experience a transformation from the inside out. We truly can have a breakthrough to the kind of life that God intended for us to live all along.